Morning, everyone. Um, for those of you who do not know me, my name's Nathan. Um, I'm married to Mandy. We have two little girls, and uh, I serve as part of as one of the elders on the eldership team for One Hope, which is a great privilege. Um, we really love this church and are really astounded um, what God's been doing through this church, and we pray that He continues to do that. So this morning, as we kind of briefly announced last week, we're going to be doing a two-part Advent series. Um, entitled The Birth of a Lion and a Lamb. So we're looking at uh, two key kind of Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, who he would be and uh, what he came to accomplish. And and the two key ideas are this. Firstly, uh, that uh, the prophecy about the Lion of Judah. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And the second one is the Lamb that was slain, which Bates is going to preach on next week. And while these two prophecies about who Jesus is are split into two weeks, they are intrinsically linked. They're tied together. They're merged together as one, and I hope that that will become clear as we kind of move through the series. And I also just really want to encourage you um, to lean into kind of the, the Advent devotional that we've sent out. We've sent out a, a link to a devotional by Tim and Kathy Keller, and I really want to encourage you to lean into that. Um, we as a life group, we had uh, kind of like a Christmas celebration this week, and uh, I've really been feeling lately like God is wanting to do something significant uh, with Christmas this year, and it might just be for me, but I'm, I'm praying and trusting that it is for others that God's wanting to kind of lift our gaze in quite a significant way and, and help us to look again at the beauty and the wonder of Jesus, Emmanuel, you know, Christ who came to dwell on the earth and to rescue us and draw us back to the Father. And I'm trusting and praying that this morning God would do that in a way. He would lift our gaze to the power of the lion. And next week, he'll look, we'll look at the beauty and the love of the sacrifice of um, the lamb. So my sermon title this morning is The Lion of Judah, and I want to just walk us through kind of three key um, aspects of this, this prophetic, uh, this prophecy about who Jesus would be. The first one is that Jesus is the Lion of Judah. We see this clearly in Scripture. There's a promise of a Lion of Judah is going to come. Jesus is that Lion. Then secondly, Jesus has the roar of the Lion. And thirdly, I want to just encourage us to run to the Lion. So go with me to Genesis 49, uh, it's Genesis 49, 8 to 12, and this is probably the clearest kind of description uh, in the Bible on who this line would be and what he would accomplish. I want to just pray for us and then we will read the text. Father, I ask that you would come and speak to us this morning, King, as I was yeah, just walking in the forest yesterday and praying for this morning, I really felt you saying you want to come and show us your power and you want to show us your love. And I ask Jesus, as you lift our gaze up to you as the Lion of Judah, the conquering lion who has defeated our enemy, Satan, I pray that you would lift our eyes up as we see your power. But not only your power, your power which is kind of married with your love, your power and love working in unity and in perfection. We want to come this morning and celebrate you, Jesus, that you were born that God, you were faithful, you promised to send someone who would come and conquer, someone who would come and redeem us, and you did. And we celebrate that this morning, King. So we pray that you would speak to us deeply, Father God. My fumbling words, I pray that your spirit would speak deeply into people's hearts, lift our gaze up to you and the beauty of what you've done, Jesus. 
Amen. So before we read, just some very brief context um, in Genesis 49, in this section of Genesis 49, um, Jacob, who was the, gr- the, the grandson of Abraham, um, his father was Isaac, he is uh, giving a blessing or a prophecy over uh, all 12 of his sons. So he's kind of on his deathbed, he's about to die, and before he does that, he gives a, a, a blessing and prophecy over his sons. And this section here, verse 8 to 12, is the specific blessing and prophecy over his fourth son, Judah. So verse 8, it says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son, your father's son shall bow down before you. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So think about this for a moment. Imagine your own father is dying, he's on his deathbed. He calls you to himself and he says, Judah, this is what God's going to do in your life. It's incredible, actually. This is what God's going to do in your life, and this is what God is going to do through your descendants. Now, I want us to just track back a little bit, broaden our perspective, and uh, I want us to go into Genesis 3, and Genesis 3, specifically verse 15. And in Genesis 3, we see the narrative of the fall. So Adam and Eve have just sinned, and the serpent, the deceiver, has caused them to doubt the goodness and the truth of God. You'll remember his call, you know, did God really say? The deceiver coming and saying, did God really say? So they doubt God's goodness and truth, and they fall in sin. And in Genesis 3, we see uh, God pronounces then a judgment upon Adam and Eve and all their descendants. And yet, in that same moment, we, we find verse 15. And uh, Genesis 3:15, uh, scholars call, the, call it the Proto-Evangelium which basically just means it's the first glimpse of God's kind of redemptive intention for the world. In Genesis 3.15, you see the first kind of prophetic glimpse of the good news of the gospel. And if you think about this, it's actually, you know, it's quite crazy because they've just sinned, God is pronouncing judgment on them, and yet as he pronounces judgment, he says, but this judgment will not be final. I'm pronouncing judgment on you, but the judgment will not be final because I'm going to send someone in the future who will have the final say. So Genesis 3, Genesis 3 verse 15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he has the prophetic promise. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So it's a prophetic promise that while Satan had bruised the heel of the seed of the woman, the foot of the one to come would squash the serpent's head. Satan the serpent, his head would be squashed. So essentially this is saying that God is going to one day send a warrior and the warrior is going to defeat our enemy, Satan. God would one day send a serpent squasher. 
So it is into this kind of reality that we see Genesis 49 fall into. God's saying, I'm going to send a warrior one day. He's going to defeat He's going to defeat my enemy and he's going to rescue my people. Genesis 49, God now starts to kind of hone in that prophecy and he starts to say that the, the promised warrior, the seed of the woman, he's going to come from the line of Judah. And the serpent squasher, he's going to be strong and he's going to be fierce like a lion. He will be a king and his kingdom will never end. But it's interesting because if you think about it, why do you think God chose Judah. You know, why did God choose Judah? Surely he should have chosen Joseph. You know, Joseph was like the favorite son with his rainbow coat. And, uh, you know, you'd think he would, be the, he would be the first choice. And if you actually, if you think about Judah's life, he was part and parcel of why Joseph was sold into slavery. You know, his brothers wanted to kill Joseph, and he said, no, why don't we sell them into slavery? And in a way, in this prophecy, you see, I guess, a glimpse of the grace and the love of God as he uses a, a man amidst his sin. He uses him in a powerful way. But we do see that Judah, <clears throat> later in his life, he becomes a man who is repentant and, and selfless. In uh, Genesis 44, there's a point where he actually offers himself up in place of his uh, younger brother, Benjamin. And there, even in the life of Judah, we begin to see some of the character of this promised lion. So look at the fullness of this prophecy. A seed of the line of Judah, of the line of Judah, will be praised, conquering his enemies like a lion. He will have his foot on their neck. His reign will never end, and the scepter will never depart from him. The scepter basically re represents the law. It will never depart from him. So he will be the lion. He will be the king of the beasts. And yet, when we look at kind of the life of Judah, we see that these promises and this prophecy was not. The, it didn't find its fulfillment in the life of Judah. Judah wasn't the promised lion, and so we had to look for another. Or what about the kings then that reigned after him? What about Saul, you know, the great king Saul? But Saul too wasn't the promised lion. In fact, he wasn't actually from the line of Judah. He was from the line of Benjamin. And we see later in his life, the presence of God is taken from him. Or what about King David? You know, the mightiest king of the people of Israel, the giant slayer who killed Goliath with a pebble. Israel's mightiest king, you know, you'll remember uh, that the people would sing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David, David has killed his ten thousands. And yet we find that this great and mighty king who, yes, portrayed glimpses of the lion that was to come, he too fell and his rule did cease. And again, we were forced to look for another. And in fact, we begin to see that the splendor and the might of King David was but a shadow of the king which was to come. And then what about Solomon, you know, David's son? In, a, in 1 Kings 10 verse 23, it describes Solomon like this, greater in riches and wisdom than all other kings of the earth. You know, King Solomon was the one who built the temple in Jerusalem, and we see in, in Scripture that under his rule, Israel was welcomed into a, a type of unity and a flourishing that was never experienced before. Surely he was the one. Surely he was the promised lion, and yet Solomon in all his glory falls too, and we see that he only shows glimpses of the lion. 
So again, we're forced to look for another. The cubs of Judah couldn't fulfill the promises. They all failed. They were all shadows and we needed the lion. And yet God continues to be faithful. We see God continues to move. God moves into a woman. Her name is Mary. Mary, who was actually from the line of Judah and of the house of David, a woman who would bear the son that was promised to the King David. And through Mary, the lion is born. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas, that God was faithful to his initial promise in Genesis 3. We see the lion has been born. The long-awaited lion, the conqueror, the serpent crusher is here. And yet, when he's born, he doesn't look like much of a lion. But we see him healing the sick and forgiving sinners, and some of the, the work of humanity and the work of the serpent is slowly being reversed. We begin to see that the bruising of the serpent is complete, that Jesus is the lion and he is here, and he, in fact, goes on to submit himself to the cross. The, the, the lion of Judah who dares to rouse him, and yet they do rouse him, In fact, they mock and jeer at him. The Lion of Judah sacrificing himself and people mock and jeer at him. But the Lion faces the enemy head on, dying on a cross. And in the moment that he dies, we see the foot of the Lion squashing the head of the snake. As Genesis 49 describes it, we see the paw of the Lion grabbing onto the neck of his enemy. But notice that it was love that conquered. It was love and peace that conquered. And a slain lion, which lay in a tomb for three days, suddenly rises, a roaring lion rises. The lion of Judah had conquered. And I want us to just imagine for a moment, part of me wished there was a way I could have like brought a real lion here, but just imagine with me, Imagine a male lion walking through the door now, coming down this aisle, everyone sitting here, walking down the aisle, male lion, sits here next to me and roars at the top of his lungs. And as he roars, your lungs, you know, kind of shudder in your chest. I would think that the crowd, we would just be in still, fear, trembling, reverence. <laughs> But Jesus, the Lion of Judah, is far greater and far more worthy of our praise. So firstly, we see that Jesus is the Lion of Judah. And remember in Genesis 49, verse 9, it says this, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, as a lioness who dares to rouse him. This is the lion's victory. The lion has made a kill and his foot is on the neck of his enemy. The lion has squashed the serpent. The king is on his throne and his, and his reign will never end. We see in Jesus that all the promises, this blessing and prophetic promise that was promised to Judah have found their yes and amen. The heel of he is bruised no longer. 
Charles Spurgeon, um, in a preach on this quote, on this uh, text, he says this, as one that gets his hand upon the neck of his prey, stops its breath and destroys it, or as one who seizes his enemy by the throat and flings him to death, how true has this been of Jesus? He laid his hand upon the neck of his enemy. When he came to the cross, fought foot to foot with the old serpent, and there vanquished sin and death and hell for us. It was a terrible battle, but it ended in splendid victory, of which we, will, we shall never cease to sing. So Jesus is the one to whom the promises belong. Jesus is the Lion of Judah who has triumphed. But I want us to kind of dig down a little bit. What, what did Jesus actually conquer? We know who he conquered. We know that he conquered Satan, but what did he actually conquer? What did Satan have? What weapon did Satan have? What vice grip did Satan have on mankind that Jesus had to conquer? I would say that it is his accusation. Satan had the accusation that all mankind had sinned and fallen short, fallen short of the glory of God and therefore they deserved judgment. They deserved to face the consequences of their sin. And Satan knew the law. He knew this was true and he knew that God had to uphold the law. This was the hold that Satan had on mankind. All mankind is sinful and therefore they are mine. And this is the power that was taken from him. This is the way that Jesus silenced him. This is the way that Jesus crushed him. Silencing the accusations of the serpent with one word, the Hebrew word tetelestai, which means it is finished, that yes, my people owe a great debt, but I have paid the debt for them. Yes, my people have sinned and deserve to be judged, but I have taken the judgment for them. The accusations of Satan had been silenced, and in that moment, the power of Satan no longer had any eternal effect. That yes, Satan can damage our mortal bodies. You know, we live in a kind of already but not yet kingdom and Satan can damage our mortal bodies, but none of what he has, has his accusation doesn't anymore have an eternal kind of ramifications for us. Jesus has the final word. The snake whose head has been crushed has been left with no fangs and no poison. And this truth is powerfully captured. There's a specific scene, um, if you've watched the story of Narnia, there's a specific scene in Narnia. Uh, it's, it's a powerful scene where the white witch, um, who kind of portrays Satan, she strides into the, the camp, into the, the camp of the, the king of Narnia, Aslan, and she demands that she, has, that she can take Prince Edmund and uh, Prince Edmund previously had kind of been coerced by this white witch to join her kingdom. And she comes demanding the boy and saying he's a traitor. He's a traitor to the kingdom of Narnia and he's a traitor to Aslan and she knows the law. She knows that all traitors to Narnia and the king must die. So the white witch, the accuser, comes and demands that Aslan, the king, upholds the law and gives her the boy. 
So Aslan, in that moment, takes her aside, and he silences her accusations against Edmund, but the way that he silences them is that he offers himself up as a sacrifice instead. And there we see a glimpse of the conquering lion who didn't conquer through power. Not through force, but he conquered through love. It was love that conquered, and in that moment, the lion became a lamb. In love, he became a lamb and was slain for the sins of God's people. We see this descripted, uh, described powerfully in Revelation 5, and I want to read just from verse 5. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So John looks for the lion. But in verse 6 we see, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb, standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And when he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, and he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is the significance and beauty that I want us to see this morning, that, that, that Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, has come. That he has come and he has defeated Satan. And this is the power of the cross. You know, the, the power of the cross in the gospel is not just that Jesus was a lamb that came to be slain. The power of the cross in the gospel is that Jesus was a lion with the power and right to kill anything that stood before him. And yet he chose to humble himself like a lamb. He chose to become like a lamb slain for the sins of God's people. Therefore, Jesus is worthy to open the scroll. And the scroll actually represents uh, God's kind of last will and testament for the earth and for eternity. The scroll is kind of like the purposes of God and Jesus is the one who's worthy to open them. The lamb-like lion has squashed the head of the serpent and silenced his every accusation against us. So firstly, Jesus is the Lion of Judah. Secondly, Jesus has the lion's roar. Look at the end of Genesis 49, 10. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes 
to him, and he has the key section, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. The king will come, and to him will be the obedience of all the peoples. The, lions, the lion conquers and roars in victory, and as he roars, all the dispersed people of God come. We see this more fully described in Hosea 11, verse 8 to 12. It says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. So if you know some of the history of the people of Israel, they were a people who constantly rebelled against God. God showed them grace, they rebelled again. God showed them grace, they rebelled again. And God is saying here that they, while they deserve His wrath, they deserve to be punished for their rebellion. His heart recoils within him, that his love compels him and restrains him. So the people are not abandoned. But one day, the, the text talks about one day when the lion roars that all the people of God will come. And this prophecy in Hosea actually found some of its fulfillments in the time of Ezra where we see two of the tribes of Israel return. But what's interesting about it is you'll notice that it, that it, it talks about them coming from the west. And that uh, th there's this glimpse actually of, of, of this prophecy now being extended out to include all people, not just Jews but also Gentiles, because you'll see that, that this return, the Jews' return here, was predominantly from the east. But during, in the time of the New Testament, when the gospel was shared, uh, most of the Gentiles came from the land of Canaan, which was actually from the west. So even here we see a glimpse of God's vision for all the people of God, the spiritual Israel. So the roar of the lion is announced and the good news of the gospel, and all the dispersed children of God come. And the roar is not a roar of wrath or judgment but a roar of victory, a roar of their salvation. Matthew Henry says this, our holy trembling at the word of Christ will draw us to him, not drive us from him. When he roars like a lion, the slaves tremble and flee from him but the children tremble and flee to him. Now we can't gloss over this. You know, in Genesis 49, essentially what it's saying is that all people who come to God, come to God through Jesus, that to him all will come and to no other. That there's no other king who will bring salvation. There is no other person who is worthy to open 
the scroll. Everybody who has been saved throughout eternity in the entire world, billions of people, all of them have come to him. And they will be held by his love. This, in a way, is the overarching message of Hosea 11. Israel, a rebellious people, God saying, my love for them restrains me. I can't pour out my wrath on them. I can't pour out my judgment on them. My love restrains me. So they're not abandoned and in his love they are kept. And then we begin to see that in Jesus, Jesus makes a way for his people to be kept. In his love they will be kept. And in his sacrifice they will dwell in love for all eternity. Jesus says this in John 10, 27 to 30. My sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice. Notice the roar of the lion. And I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So Jesus has the lions roar, and to him all people will come. Thirdly, I want to encourage us and urge us to run to the lion. Run to the lion and draw near to the throne of grace. If you're a believer this morning, I want to encourage you, come closer. Come closer to the lion, live in the victory, dwell in the love and the faithfulness of what Jesus has done. and know that we will be kept. You know, as I was preparing for this, I was just reminded of the power of Jesus. You know, we so often think of Jesus as a lamb, but we, we, we easily forget of his power. Not just a lamb, not a humble lamb, you know, a pushover. Jesus is a lion. Jesus has won the victory for us and nobody can snatch us from him. Jesus is the king who is on the throne and his reign will never end. There's no king who's going to come ever in eternity who will overthrow him. The Lion of Judah has conquered and his reign will never end. Spurgeon says this, look again and you will see that all over the world those that are saved are gathering to Jesus rallying around him and accepting him as their leader, instructor, and king. The Jews said, we have no king but Caesar, and Christians say, we have no king but Jesus. I mean no spiritual lord, no teacher, no leader, except Jesus Christ himself. Unto him shall all the gathering of the people be. His people out of all nations shall come and take his easy yoke and wear it, and find rest unto their souls. And now at this moment, my eyes can see myriads all over the world who are coming nearer and nearer to Jesus with instant, eager cry saying, draw us, Lord. Draw us nearer to thyself. Make us more like thyself. Help us to live more to thy glory. Is there one of these golden threads drawing you? Then run if you are drawn and seek to love your Lord and serve him better than ever you have done. For unto him shall the gathering of the people be. So I want to encourage us this morning to draw closer to the lion. 
draw closer to Jesus, embrace the victory and his faithfulness. I've been stunned in preparing this. You know the faithfulness of God? Like Jesus was victorious, but you just see this powerful image of the faithfulness of God. I mean, Genesis 3, God's already saying, this is what I'm going to do. And as you move through the Old Testament, God brings that, that picture clearer and clearer. Genesis 49, yes, the warrior is still coming, coming through Judah. Images of the warrior and the kings that came after him. And then Jesus comes and fulfills all of the promises and the prophecies in the Old Testament, and he fulfills the faithfulness of the Father. So I want to encourage us to draw near to the line, and I want to encourage you as a believer to lift up the gospel. Lift up the basic principles, the roots of the gospel. Sinners lost, and a Savior who has come to redeem his people. This is the story of Christmas. Lift up the gospel and pray that God would gather them, that to him he would come. You know, these texts in Genesis 49 and Hosea 11, they're prophecies. They're saying this will happen. You know, you don't have to hope that God's going to gather a people. God's promised that he will gather a people. So pray that he would gather those around you. Pray that they would hear the roar of the lion, the good news of the gospel, and they wouldn't run from him in fear, but they would run to him in joy or in reverence. And if you're not a Christ follower this morning, and you hear the voice of Jesus, you hear in a way this roar of the lion, the victory that he's won over the sin that you struggle with, the guilt that you hold. Don't run from him in fear as a slave or an enemy, but run to him. Yield to his call. Yield to his call because this is your only hope and in him an eternity of joy awaits you. I promise you there is no sustaining joy, sustaining love anywhere else. There is no salvation outside of Jesus. Hear the call of the conquering lion and run to him. Jesus says all who come to him will be saved. Heed that call and come. Father God, we thank you, Jesus, that you are the lion. We thank you that you are victorious. We thank you, Jesus, that you are on the throne, reigning in victory. No one can come who can challenge you. You're the lion, king of the beasts. We thank you, Jesus, that we as your people, we, we, we sit in a way kind of like beneath your belly, you know, behind your two paws. Safely behind the lion. Our victor and our protector. We thank you, Father, that we have been redeemed and welcomed into your kingdom. And we look to the wondrous kingdom that is to come, Father God. Even in Genesis 49, at the end there, we see glimpses of the kingdom, a kingdom with so much flourishing and joy in the year of Jubilee, where wine is just uh, is, is so flourishing that we can tie our donkeys to it. 
We can wash expensive clothes in it because there's just so much flourishing king. I pray, Jesus, that you would come and lift up our hearts, even as I've felt this week, lift our gaze to you, to the king who has come, the king who has conquered. We no longer need to wait for another. The fulfillment of the promise has come, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, who came to dwell on the earth. A lion, a powerful lion, submitting yourself to the cross facing your enemy head on and squashing the head of the serpent. We thank you, Jesus, that Satan doesn't anymore have an eternal hold on us. His accusation is nullified. No longer can we be accused if we stand behind you, Jesus. Behind your sacrifice, we have been made clean. The price has been paid. The judgment has been executed. Lift our gaze to you, God. Fill us with courage at your power. Cause us to run and to walk with conviction of the gospel, Father God. The victory that you've done. The life we now have in the kingdom of you, Jesus. I pray, Father, for people this morning who who haven't yet responded to you, and I want to ask, King, that you would, in a way, (laughs) roar over their lives, Father God. That you, as, as the shepherd, that you would raise up your voice, the good news of the gospel, and you would draw them to yourself. I pray that if that is you, yield. Whatever barriers you have, yield to the call of the lion. Embrace the victory, the hope, the love, the joy. The destiny of a prince or princess in the kingdom of the Lion of Judah. We thank you that you are the victor, Jesus, and I pray that you would help us to see you in that way. Amen.